Okay. <clears throat> I won't tell you to turn to those that long scripture reading. Obviously, you can have your Bibles open and fall along. I will not go through every little detail. Uh, I believe that this long section of scripture is designed to be a unit, and I believe that it is there to, to make a very clear point to us. You are reminded multiple times every day of the power of evil that surrounds you. The Bible teaches us that we have three enemies. The one is our own sinful heart. The second are the spiritual forces of evil. And the third is the unbelieving world in which we live. And each of these forces are powerful. They are relentlessly working against you to hold you back from enjoying eternal life with God. When our eyes become fixed on these evils, we can lose hope and we can find ourselves on the brink of despair. What is it that will keep us from going over the brink? I believe it is only continually renewing and being refreshed in the greatness of God. Today's sermon is called The Awesome of Isaac. And that's not a typo. In verses 42 and 53 of Genesis 31, Jacob will refer to God as the fear of Isaac. And that word fear has a range of meaning. It is used often as that which causes you to tremble and shiver. It is that also which invokes in you awe and wonder. It describes that which is in its truest sense, in its true meaning, awesome. In today's passage, we learn the events in Jacob's life that bring him to call God awesome. Fear, awe-inspiring, awesome. And what is more, Jacob has not found a new God to give this name to. It is the same God in which his dad worshipped. You think about that a moment. Throughout the events of this story, Jacob will come to learn that the God of his dad is the awesome one of Isaac. Now, so far, Jacob's life has been anything but awesome. For that matter, we could actually say the same thing about Isaac. The Bible portrays these men as ordinary, fallen men living in a fallen world. might be a little bit like your life. If you had a week like mine, you would not describe it as awe-inspiring. And yet for those of us who cling to Jesus Christ, our God is the same God who evoked in Jacob to call God the fear 
of Isaac. The awesome of Isaac. So we pick up Jacob's life with the birth of Joseph. This is Rachel's first son. Jacob has ten sons, six with Leah, two with Leah's servant, and two with Rachel's servant. But this is the first son to his beloved Rachel. And we were told in last week's sermon that Joseph's birth was the result of God remembering Rachel. Genesis 30 verse 22 says, Then God remembered Rachel and listened to her and opened her womb. So verse 25 begins with, As soon as, as soon as Joseph was born, the birth of Joseph is the turning point in Jacob's life. We may not know exactly why it's the turning point. If you read the rest of the story, Joseph is a pretty important character in Genesis. But it is the turning point. And Jacob, as soon as Joseph is born, he goes to Laban. And he says to him, can I have permission to go back home? Now, up to this point, we didn't really have any indication that Jacob even desired to go back to his homeland. He has been living for a good while in the land of Laban. But the birth of Joseph has Jacob ready to leave. But here's what's interesting. Jacob doesn't just get up one day and say, you know, Laban, I've talked it over with Mom, uh, Rachel and Leah, we're heading out. Thanks for everything. Instead... Jacob asks permission. He asks permission to leave. Is that not strange? Why would he not just say, it's time to leave? And I want you to understand that Jacob's freedom to do what he wants is a major theme of this entire story. The question is, who is Jacob? Is he a free man, even a lord of his own household, or is he a slave of Laban? Jacob will call Rachel and Leah my wives, my children. But in chapter 31, 43, Laban actually says differently. He says they are my daughters. You see, Jacob has worked 14 years hard labor to be able to say, these are my wives. He has worked seven years for each of them. But the issue is, will Laban acknowledge his own independence and freedom? Who is Jacob? And will Laban recognize the truth of who Jacob is? Now, broadly speaking, the same questions could be asked of you. Who are you? Who are you sitting there today? Are you a slave of this world? Because that's who Laban represents. Are you a slave of this world? Or are you sitting here today a prince of the awesome? 
Are you a slave of this world or are you a prince of the awesome? Verse 27 and 28. Laban has no intention of letting Jacob leave. He has learned through divination that Yahweh has blessed him because of Jacob. And that's, don't take this as Laban actually acknowledging Yahweh to be his God. Laban believes in localized deity. My family has a God, your family has a God. His God has revealed to him that Jacob's kind of like a talisman, like a good luck charm. You don't want get to get, let him get away from you. And what you need to understand is that in this struggle between Jacob and Laban, and it is a struggle, a human struggle, Jacob wants to leave and return to his home, to go to the promised land. Laban wants to keep him there, keep him as a servant of him. Behind that human struggle that is taking place, there is a supernatural, a divine struggle going on. There is a struggle between the spiritual realm, Laban's spiritual realm, and Jacob's God. The same thing is going on in your lives. There is a spiritual struggle behind the physical struggles that you have. The question is whether or not our God is stronger than all the other forces of evil that oppose us. That's the question. Verse 29, Jacob agrees that up until this time he has been a servant of Laban. But he also makes his case that Laban should allow him, allow to let him leave. See, you would think, if you have been blessed because, because of me, don't you think it would be good to be nice to me? Jacob thinks, yeah, just let me go. But again, Jacob doesn't demand to be let go. He's actually concerned that he would not be allowed to go, which shows that Jacob very much still views himself as being under the authority, even a servant or a slave of Laban. <clears throat> Laban sees Jacob sort of like uh, in the story of Jack and the Beanstalk, the golden goose. Right? <clears throat> Laban is always thinking about the money. And so he offers to give something to Jacob. And even in this offer to give to him, and these are subtle things in the text. The Hebrew scriptures can sometimes be very subtle. By offering to give him something, Laban is still... Uh, positioning himself as the master and Lord of which he would give something to a servant. But Jacob understands this, and he doesn't want anything from Laban. He doesn't want to be indebted to Laban at all. Because if he were indebted to Laban, it would give the impression that Yahweh could not bless Jacob without the help of Laban. You following this? Jacob doesn't want any handouts. Instead, he says, I'm going to come up with a plan to gain wealth. Up until this time, Jacob has been working only for his wives. That debt has been fulfilled. Now he says, I will work for you again, but now I will work for a different sort of wage. It will be livestock. 
Now, Jacob is smart enough to know that Laban is wily. He knows that Jacob that Laban will not give him a fair wage. And so he asks for a very unfair wage. Now, reading the text can be very confusing. I might want to go through all the details of this, but it boils down to this. Jacob will get those speckled and spotted animals, the ones that are discolored, the ones that are more rare, not necessarily more valuable, just more rare. Some people today say it's like 20% of the flocks are these colors, but I don't know about back that time. But anyway, it's the lesser ones. I'll give you most of the flock. You just give me the rare ones, okay? Laban says, sounds like a good deal to me. You keep working for me? Yeah, I'll give you the rare ones. Only Laban decides to tilt the scales a little bit more like a gambling casino that kind of tilts the, the odds a little bit. He removes all of the ones who have the rare coloring and puts them way away. So the only ones that are left are the ones that don't have the rare coloring. So, or Jacob doesn't, he doesn't complain. He just says, okay. Jacob has his own sort of plan. Now, this is Jacob's plan to tilt the scales back in his favor, but you are sitting there scratching your head going, how does that work? Taking some almond branches, putting them in front of the troughs or in the troughs. I know there's some different ideas on this. And there are some theologians who try to say that Jacob has actually, he's just outsmarted Laban and he knows the, the uh, properties of these, these bark and somehow it's, it's doing things in the water that somehow changes the outcome of the animals. And I'm not convinced of any of that. It is not Jacob's superior intelligence. It is not his craftiness. I would put the sticks in the same category as the mandrakes in the last chapter. Or putting the, uh, putting the, the goat skin on his arms and somehow fooling his dad. It, these are things that, that, they're almost like, really, that works? And yet God does the work. Chapter 31, beginning in verse 1. Things go well for Jacob. He gets a lot of animals on his side. And just like we saw last week with Rachel and Leah, there's jealousy. Only this time it's not the jealousy in family matters, in relationships. It's the jealousy of property, of the things that you own in business affairs. They look at the situation, Laban's family, looks at the situation as if Jacob has stolen their dad's wealth. They don't see it as God's work. They see it as Jacob stealing it. And, Jake, and God knows that this will be a very touch-and-go time. Think about in your own life. Someone in power over you no longer likes you. Maybe you're working for your boss, and he's not real happy with you anymore. He has the power to take away your God. I mean, your, take away your job. Maybe, maybe you uh, take a stand on biblical principles and you no longer have the favor of those around you. Maybe your government doesn't like you anymore 
All these powerful forces around you that seem to have the ability to do you evil. Jacob is in a, in a precarious place right now. He's going, oh my goodness, what am I going to do? Laban has the power to harm him. It is in this context that the Lord appears to Jacob. In verse 3, return to the land of your fathers, to your kindred, and I will be with you. You see, Jacob doesn't have to learn these things through divination. Yahweh simply speaks to him. At the same time, Yahweh commands Jacob to do what would be a risky thing, return to the land of his fathers. And he tells him, I will be with you. Now there's another issue that's going on here. Jacob understands that his wives are still, and this is hard to see, but his wives are technically still under the authority of Laban. Even though they're his wives, Laban is a servant. I mean, Jacob is a servant to Laban. And so Jacob has fear that his, his own wives would side with Laban rather than him. And so Lab, Jacob begins to actually persuade his wives what he wants to do. So how does he do this? He basically says, I've been very much blessed. That's because my God's taking care of me. He even explains the dream to them. But he also explains to them that, um, that Laban has tried to cheat him over and over and over again. I've been working 20 years for this man. And in this, he explains to them the dream that he had. He explains to them that he had a, a, a time with the, the God of Bethel. He calls that the God of Bethel. That was a couple weeks ago. But he, he talks about, this God has been working for me. He explains to them that it's all about my God. It's not about me. It's about my God. And wonderfully, Rachel and Leah both agree to go with him rather than their father. This is very important to the covenant promises because the whole point of Jacob going there was to get a wife and children. And so if he were to get there and then start turning around going back but not have his wives and children, the promises would be falling short. That's the issue. Rachel and Leah actually have the beginnings of faith. They encourage Jacob to do what the Lord asked him to do. Jacob then, once he has his wife secured, says, we're going to get out of here. We're going to slip out in the night. He's on his way to Gilead. All you need to know about Gilead is it's right close to the promised land. Not quite in the promised land, but right there, close to it. He takes all of his property with him. He's traveling pretty slow, but he gets a three days head start. Only one thing he takes that he doesn't know that he's taking, and that is the household gods of Laban. Now, I will tell you that uh, there's been times in my life where I haven't been sure of her motivation for doing that. And I don't think I absolutely know her motivation, but I do not think it was to worship those idols. And I'll explain that in a minute. Probably revenge, maybe wealth. I don't think it was to worship when Laban discovers that he has been tricked by Jacob, he, he is pursuing after him. He's going to overtake him. His intent is to actually get back everything. He wants to get his, his property, he wants to get his, his daughters and even his grandchildren, and he wants to either kill or leave Jacob destitute. 
And he might have done just that. Only who intervenes? God shows up in a dream and he says, don't you lay a hand on Jacob. So Laban knows that he has lost in an outright power struggle. He can't actually overcome this, this far superior God to actually take Jacob, take his property. So what does he do then? He goes a more legal route. He starts leveling accusations. You have stolen my daughters. You have insulted my generosity. You have wrongfully taken my grandkids. And number four, you have stolen my household gods. And the question is going to be, how will Jacob respond to these? Because if he can't answer these charges, it is possible that Laban will have a legal right to take them all back. So Jacob admits that he left in fear. I think that's very refreshing because you think Jacob's admitting, yeah, I did it under the command of God, but I was also afraid of you. I mean, that's kind of refreshing in our lives because we want to walk by faith, but yet there's a mixture of motivations going on in our lives. But other than admitting his fears, Jacob doesn't answer any of Laban's charges except the one about the gods. Why? Well, the story is all about. If, if Jacob actually took these gods, would that not imply that he is actually trusting in the gods of Laban to bless him rather than his own god, and he does not want that at all. We will kill whoever has taken these if you find them. Now, he has absolutely no idea. This is where the story gets really humorous. He has no idea that Rachel has stolen these gods. His vow... Not a, not a rash vow, but his ra- vow could have ruined everything. If Laban finds these gods, the whole tide switches. Laban now is on the upper hand. He can steal back the goods. He's going to go back, uh, leave Jacob with nothing. He, extend, he has this extensive search, and the, 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 uh, the story slows down. We go to this tent. We go to that tent. You can just, you know, visually you see these kind of things, right? The intensity, it's, it's building. You're like, are they going to find the gods? Now, it just so happens Rachel's tent is the last tent that he searches. And he obviously he can't find them because she has hid the gods underneath her saddle. And she explains that she is on her menstrual period. And so she cannot, this would be an unclean thing. Make her unclean. And she knows two things. She knows that, number one, dad is not going to actually search because he doesn't want to be unclean. But also, and this is a very subtle thing, if she were wanting to worship these gods and trust in them, she would never have hid them where she did. You're at the same time, you're nervous that the gods would be found, and at the same time, you are snickering as a reader. Because if there were legitimacy to Laban's gods, don't you think that they would be able to reveal the truth about where these idols are? On the other hand, Jacob doesn't even know that they exist, and yet his god is overseeing the whole thing and guaranteeing that they don't get found out. This is the real issue. 
Who's in charge? Is the God of Jacob in charge or these other false forces? See, the lesson to us all, when God chooses to bless someone, when he brings them into a covenant relationship with himself, there are no forces of evil that can thwart God's good plan in their lives. As soon as Laban's search ends in failure, Jacob takes the moral high ground. And again, you're supposed to laugh because he really doesn't have a right to have the moral high ground, and yet he takes it anyway. And he takes the offensive, and he's going after him. And in some sense, he does have the moral high ground, because he didn't steal any gods. But, you know, you get the picture. It's all to be kind of this almost humorous issue that's happening here. He explains to him that he's been cheated over and over In verse 42, we come to the climax, and I want you to hear this. If the God of my father, the God of Abraham, and the fear of Isaac had not been on my side, surely you would have sent me away empty-handed. God saw my affliction and the labor of my hands and rebuked you last night. This is the climax of the story. The God of Abraham... The fear of Isaac has been on my side. And what you need to see here, again, this is subtle Hebrew poetry. The God of my father, the God of Abraham, it should say the God of Isaac. But they take out the word God and they put in fear. And it's used as a noun, which typically fear would be a verb or an adjective. And so here they they put it in as a noun. And this is why I've titled the sermon, The Awesome of Isaac. Well, I don't even say the awesome one of Isaac. It is the awesome. That's who he is. Your God is awesome. He is fear-inspiring. He is awe-inducing. That's who God is. And Jacob has been dumbfounded by this whole thing. What is it that God has done in this story to to be justified in being given this name? He has trampled on foreign gods. He has been powerful to protect his servant. He has prospered his people, even taking from those who are trying to suppress them. Now, I'm not saying that every person who's a Christian will just get wealthy at the expense of those who are trying to harm them in this life. But I will say this, that God has promised that the wealth of the nations will be brought into his kingdom. And so on the judgment day, everything that you think that belongs to the evil world belongs to God's people because it belongs to Christ. And he is in the process of fulfilling his promises to Jacob Nothing, absolutely nothing, can prevent the fear of Isaac from pouring out blessing upon his child, Jacob. And it's not by accident that Jacob uses this word with his dad. When he left his parents, do you think he had a high view of Isaac? He deceived Isaac. 
made Isaac look like a fool. I mean, we, we look at Isaac as a bit of a disappointment, do we not? Anybody here say, man, I should be just like Isaac. He's a bit of a disappointment. But what is awesome about Isaac? Well, he's joined to an awesome God. You see, the Bible does not present to us Isaac the Great. You know, in history, Peter the Great, all these, you know, great people, awesome people. The Bible doesn't do that. The Bible presents to us the awesome one of Isaac. Your life might be ordinary, but your God is awesome. He is working in your life in ways that you cannot fathom. If you would have asked Jacob before this moment how awesome his God was, he wouldn't have said very awesome. But your God is awesome, and he is working to fulfill his promises in your life. And no one, no force can prevent you from entering into God's eternal kingdom for you purchased in Jesus Christ. Now what is interesting in this is that because Jacob is under the awesome God, Jacob is no longer a slave to any human. And I would argue he's not a slave to sin, he's not a slave to the spiritual forces of evil, and he's not a slave to anything in this world. In fact, in this story, Laban, you know he hates this, comes to the point where he acknowledges Jacob as an equal. Because he comes to him and says, okay, Let's make a covenant. And this is not a covenant between a master and, a, and a, like a, a vassal, a lord and a vassal. This is a, a covenant of equals. This is like a non-aggression pact. And so Laban has been brought to forced, he's actually been forced by God to recognize that Jacob is truly his, a lord of his own household. He is a servant of the God of Isaac. Now, In this pact, it is also another amazing thing. See, Laban creates this pact, and in verse 53, he says, The God of Abraham and the God of Nahor, the God of their father, judge between us. I believe he's basically saying, You've got a God, the God of Abraham. I've got a God, the God of Nahor. Now, there are two Nahors. One is Abraham's brother, and one is like Abraham's father, I think. But I think he's probably referring to Abraham's brother, because that's his own family God. Um, And he's basically saying, we have these gods, and they're going to judge between us. What God does he leave out? What name does he leave out? The fear of Isaac. And then when you see right after this, what is it that Jacob says? He says, let me get this here. Uh... 3153. Um, so the God, Laban says, the God of Abraham, the God of Nahor, the God of their father judge between us. And then Jacob immediately says, so Jacob swore by the fear of his father, 
Isaac. Jacob says, forget this double witnesses, your God, my God. I'm swearing by my God alone because my allegiance lies with him. You see, if you understand who your God is and you understand that he raises you up and makes you the slave of no man, you will give your allegiance to him and him alone because he is worthy of it. Now, I will say, this is just a teaser for the next sermon. He doesn't call him my God yet. That'll wait. It's coming. It's not quite here. But Jacob is being in awe of this God who is the God of his dad. The story ends in kind of a strange way. It ends with a blessing from Laban. Now, there's a lot of ways you can take this, but I kind of take this as a little bit more human uh, humor I mean do you really think after going through this whole story that you really care about the blessing of Laban (laughs) the only thing that matters is the blessing of Yahweh brothers and sisters in Jesus Christ do you believe in the awesome of Isaac You see, this story has been given to you for one primary purpose, to help you believe in the true God and not trust in the false gods of this world. Young people, young people, listen to me. Respect your parents. Love your parents. But it is not your parents who deserve the title awesome. But the God of your parents, he deserves that title. Jesus Christ is God's greatest act on the cross, suffering, dying for our sins, greatest work of redemption. But I don't really want to end with that statement. I want to end with a a description in Exodus 15, and with Scripture. This is after they come up out of Egypt. Israel comes up out of Egypt, and this is what they say. Who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? Who is like you? Majestic in holiness, Awesome in glorious deeds, doing wonders. You stretched out your right hand. The earth swallowed them. You have led in your steadfast love the people whom you have redeemed. You have guided them by your strength to your holy abode. The peoples have heard. They tremble. Pangs have seized the inhabitants of Philistia. Now are the chiefs of Edom dismayed. Trembling seizes the leaders of Moab. All the inheritance of Canaan have melted away. Terror and dread fall upon them all because of the greatness of your arm. They are still as stone till your people, O Lord, pass by. Till the people pass by whom you have purchased. Do you know what's going to happen on the judgment day when we are marching in and all of the world that that thought, thought so little of us, they're going to see the greatness 
of God saving his people. O Lord, pass by till the people pass by whom you have purchased. You will bring them in and plant them on your own mountain. The place, O Lord, which you have made for your abode. The sanctuary, O Lord, which your hands have established. The Lord will reign forever and ever. The awesome of Isaac is worthy of your trust. And the awesome of Isaac is worthy of your devotion. Amen.